Suhba means companionship, fellowship, and mentorship. At Suhba Institute, our mission is to accompany and inspire individuals along their journey of growth by providing quality, nurturing, and easily accessible Islamic learning that is applicable to our ever-changing lives and circumstances. For more information, visit suhba.com. That's S-U-H-B-A-H dot com. So to begin, <clears throat> I want to ask you guys, this is a part where you can um, interact. I do want to ask you guys, growing up, um, in whichever respective places you call home, whether it's here, whether it's outside of the U.S., what was the picture or the characteristics of what an ideal, pious Muslim woman looks like? What have, what have you learned growing up that was the idea of a, a, a good, pious Muslim woman? What were some of those characteristics that she had? A sacrificial lamb. Other have to do everything in the house. Have to do every single thing in the house. Okay. You did say of a pious woman, correct? Of, oh, just a woman. of of a Muslim woman. What we've been taught is 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 the 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 characteristics of a good Muslim woman or the picture that, that we've been that has been drawn for us. Someone who prays five times a day. Someone who prays five times a day, a relationship with her Lord. Yeah. The backbone of the house. Sorry? The backbone of the house. The backburn of the house, the one whom all of the, the duties of the house, the backbone. The backbone. Yeah. backbone, I mean, that's what I've seen my mother, and that's how I saw my father treated my mother, that, you know, she was the, the center at the same time was the backbone, you know, it's, you knew if anything was wrong, that's the pillar. It's beautiful. Any other thoughts? Okay. So <clears throat> let me tell you how, you know, when I grew up here, particularly I grew up in Houston, Texas, growing up here, this is kind of the idea that I was shown about what was a good Muslim woman. That if you wanted to strive to be a good Muslim woman, then you had to do the following things. One was that she should remain in the home. To the best of her ability, she, she shouldn't have any reason that she needs to go out. Um, number two, she shouldn't work. She shouldn't have a career outside of the home. She shouldn't be doing anything else if she has children. That, that should be the only thing that she does, staying in the home and taking care of the children. She should not travel alone, whether it's some close distance or some faraway distance. She should always have someone alongside with her. In fact, it was this idea that a woman has to be hidden, that the more hidden she was from society, then the better Muslimah that she was. Now, even, even to the point that's outside of the home, but inside of the home, she shouldn't have firm opinions, that if her husband was to, make, to have an opinion on a matter, she shouldn't give her response. That was what was painted for me as the picture of, of a good Muslim woman. And I'm not saying this is what my parents taught me, but this is what I had learned from society and culture. And, you know, there, there's a saying that is put into books of Islamic literature. It's a saying in Arabic, and 
it says that a good Muslim woman only leaves her home two times in her life. One time from her father's home to her husband's home, and the second time from her husband's home to the grave. This, this quotation has been put in, in books of Islamic literature. What's interesting, though, is when you look for the author of this quote, uh, it is unknown. It is not attributed to anyone. In fact, it says, qila. In the Arabic language, qila means it was said. So we don't know who said it, but someone said it. The danger of a quote like this is, uh, maybe it was written hundreds of years ago, it's sitting in the books of, of, of our Islamic literature. Um, what happens is you start attributing this to perhaps the Prophet ﷺ. Or you start attributing this to the correct practice of a Muslim woman. And so recently, maybe just a year ago, I saw a meme that was made out of this quote. A good Muslim woman doesn't leave but two times. And it was a, you know, a, a meme that was praised by a certain group of people. So this is actually what caused me to go and look and research this quote. And, and the problem is that when things like this, which have no basis, the author is unknown and, and this, the, the information has, has no person behind it, but it's being passed off as correct Islamic education, then we as women start questioning what am I supposed to do? Is, is everything I've been doing going out outside of the home, has that been incorrect? And so it, it starts making us question, um, are we good Muslim women if we do things that are outside of this, this box that has been created? Or is, is there some information out there that, that we haven't been told about? I'll give you another example. Um, there is a hadith. It's actually, it is a hadith, which mentions that Fatima radiallahu anha and Rasulullah sallallahu the daughter and father are a daughter and uh, father are having a conversation, and he asks her who is the best woman, and she says the best woman is one who men do not see her, and she does not see those men. This is a hadith. The question is, what is the authenticity of this hadith? When this hadith is mentioned in books, sometimes the authenticity is not mentioned. Upon further research, you look at the classification of this hadith, it is munkar. Munkar means rejected, fabricated. Someone has put it out as a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, but through all of the authentic authentication processes of the scholars of hadith, they said, this is so weak, we can't at all attribute it to the Prophet ﷺ, that they called it munkar rejected. They said you should not teach this to people except to teach them that it is rejected. This hadith should not be mentioned as a, as a way to teach people how they should live other than to teach them that it is something rejected that we do not take. Yet this hadith is one that is often put in our literature without the classification. So these confusions keep on coming and we start thinking, how am I supposed to act as, as a Muslim woman in this world, whether it's hundreds of years ago or whether it's today? Well, I'll tell you what the reality is. The reality is that for most of our lives, we as Muslim women have been learning a, a narrative of Muslim, women, of Muslim women that is very, very narrow. 
that is very, very narrow. Not saying that it's all incorrect. Maybe perhaps there are some fallacies that have been put into our understanding. But for the most part, it's just that it's been a very narrow narrative. Imagine there's a 500-page book on women in Islam, and we've been learning about 10 pages. There are 490 pages that we just haven't uncovered or looked, looked into or discovered to tell us how did the women live at the time of Rasulullah I ask you this question in our Sunday schools, and I'm, I'm a result of the Sunday school system. In our Sunday schools, how many women sahabiyat did we learn about? How many of their names can we count? I would say growing up, I can't even count them on my fingers. There's not that many that we had heard about. As opposed to the male sahaba, we had learned about Abu Bakr, Uthman, radiallahu anhu, Ali. We can, we can name so many names, but how many women sahaba can we mention? So does that mean they didn't exist? Or does that just mean that their stories are sitting undiscovered? The truth is, their stories are there. They are actually sitting in the seerah. They are actually sitting in the books of ahadith that we, we, we say are the most authentic books of ahadith, Sahih Bukhari and Muslim. Their stories are sitting there. But with, with, without someone taking this information from a lens of a woman, these ideas have just not been passed down from generation to generation. When we think about women in Islam, when people talk about it and teach it, when teachers teach their students, they usually concentrate on that 10 pages, which is the fiqh of hijab, what to wear, what not to wear, the fiqh of menstruation, when she can pray, when she can't pray, what does she do? It became a very scientific knowledge of what she can and cannot do in certain circumstances. But there's a whole bunch of literature out there about the women at the time of Rasulullah how they lived their day-to-day -day lives, how they interacted with people in their family, outside in the public, with Rasulullah himself, in the masjid, in the community. There's an entire, there's books and books of literature on that. But unfortunately, it's often just not passed down from teacher to student. Now, I wouldn't say that this is a agenda made by certain people. What I think it is, is simply when, when teachers are, are teaching, you would say Islam is an entire way of life, right? So you have to teach so much to your students. When there's something that they don't consider extremely important, so then maybe that information just doesn't get passed down from generation to generation. Teacher to student, they may talk about these 10 pages of women but not the other 490 because they, they thought perhaps it wasn't important to include this information. However, what it takes is someone to look at this information, go to the Sahih Bukhari, go to Sahih Muslim, go to the Quran and look at all of the ayat regarding women, look at all of the ahadith regarding women and from that lens start to try to find out what was the reality of their situation and their circumstances at that time. And what's amazing is Someone actually did that. There is a man by the name of Abdul Halim Abu Shukka. He passed away recently um, in 1995. He wrote a book. Let me backtrack the book he wrote. Let me tell you the intention of his book. So this is a, a, a well-learned man, and he intends to write a book about the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ using only authentic hadith. 
So he says, I am going to write the life of the Prophet only using the ahadith from Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim and the other four sunan of ahadith. He says, I want to make a very authentic um, book of the, the Prophet So he begins this journey. This is all in his introduction to the book. He says, I began this journey to start writing the seerah of the Prophet and I start going through Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim, looking at every single hadith, one at a time, delving into it. And he says, there's one thing that really struck me, something that was so different from what I had learned all of my life, being a learned man, having understood women's fiqh and women's prayer and women's um, dress. He said, in the Sahih Bukhari and Muslim ahadith, I started to see stories of women doing things at the time of the Messenger in front of the Messenger that I had never learned in my life that a woman could do. Stories of women doing things that he had never imagined was allowed, was acceptable, was normal. And so what he actually did is he changes the entire trajectory of his book. And he goes through, instead of getting a seerah of the life of the Prophet he goes and finds every single hadith related to a woman. Maybe not even the necessarily talking about a fiqh of women, but he said anything that was narrated by a woman, that mentions a woman, he looks into the nuance of the hadith to see maybe in the passing by of this hadith, you find some information about how they actually lived their life, of how they dressed, of how they interacted. And so he gets every single one of these hadith from Sahih Bukhari and Muslim and all of the ayat of the Qur'an, and he researches them, and he makes this entire encyclopedia. It became a six-volume encyclopedia called Tahrirul Mar'a Fi Asri Risala, The Liberation of Women at the Time of the Message. Now, what does he find in this book? What does he write in this book when he finds this information? First of all, he goes to talking about the, the, um, the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talked about women in the Qur'an. So he noticed that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was trying to give equality to women in a particular sphere, and that was the spiritual sphere. So while Jahiliya, while Jahiliya Arabia, pre-Islamic Arabia, had considered women to an extremely lower level where they were, there were baby girls who were buried alive, this was not a common practice, but it occurred at that time. They didn't see the value of a woman where women were inherited as property at that time, where if a, if a, if a father passed away and his, um, he had wives that were remaining, his son would inherit those wives as property. So this was a time where women were put at a very low level. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends down revelation to honor the woman and to put her at a place where they had not considered was even possible for her to be. So Allah mentions in the Qur'an, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الناس إن خلقناكم من ذكر وأنثى وجعلناكم شعوبا وقبائل لتعارفوا إن أكرمكم عند الله أتقاكم Allah subhanahu wa taala says in Surah Hujurat O you people I have created you from ذكر وأنثى from man and woman and we've made you different tribes and peoples so that you would know one another. And then the final line, 
um, Certainly the most noble from all of you, from man, from woman, from the different tribes and races, is atqakum, the one who has the most taqwa of Allah. So Allah is putting everyone's ideas, throwing them out of the window and saying that a woman can reach a status of high, uh, Allah is pleased with her, with the devotion that she has as a woman. That if she can, just like a man can reach this state of high taqwa, that a woman can as well. Allah mentions in Surah Tahrim, He says, وَدَرَبَ اللَّهُ مَثَلًا لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِمْرَأَةَ فِرْعَوْنَ And in the next ayah, وَمَرْيَمْ He says, Allah says, And we have given an example لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا For all of those who believe. Not for the females who believe, is this an example. He says, for all of those who have believed, we give you an example of the wife of Fir'aun, Asiya. And Maryam, السلام, the daughter of Imran. In their devotion to Allah, in their going through trials and difficulties that were difficult, whether it was an oppressive ruler, or whether, whether it was being a woman devoted to Allah, spending her entire life in the devotion of Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us the example of two women as the example for all believers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in another ayah in Surah Ahzab, ayah 35, wal muslimat, wal wal mu'minat, wal wal Every time you hear the word at, Allah was mentioning the females, saying the, fee, the male Muslims and the female Muslims, Muslimat. The male believers, Mu'minin, and the female uh, believers, Mu'minat. Allah, Allah mentions all of this and then He says, Allah says um, that He will prepare for all of them, the Muslim women, believing women, believing men, all of them, He will prepare for them a mercy and a great reward. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made a point to include women in these ayat when he, he, was, he was putting this in a culture where people had put women to the status where they were property, where they were commodities being given from person to person. Allah was trying to raise the status of women to the people at that time who didn't think it was even possible. There's a story that... We, we hear in the ahadith, but the ayah is actually, is actually there in the Qur'an in Surah Mujadila, where there's a woman who her husband has said something very disgusting to her, a very disgusting, disrespectful statement, which was that you are like the back of my mother. Uh, a husband says this to a wife. So he's likening the, the wife to the mother, meaning I have no desire for you, just as you know, you're like a mother to me. So she, he says this word, and this also has other implications in their culture. And this woman comes to the Prophet ﷺ and complains. She complains about her husband emotionally abusing her, being disrespectful and saying disgusting things to her. Allah reveals ayat at that time that say the following. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم قد سمع الله قول التي تجادلك في زوجها وتشتكي إلى الله والله يسمع تهاوركما إن الله سميع بصير الله سبحانه وتعالى 
is listening to this conversation between a woman complaining about her husband to Rasulullah and he, the ayat that are revealed is, Allah surely heard the conversation of the one who is complaining to you about her wife and is complaining to Allah and Allah hears your conversation and Allah is certainly all hearing and all seeing. A man in the confines of his home has disrespected and said something terrible to his wife. Allah sends down ayat that give that man repercussions, says that because of what you have done, you have to free a slave. If you can't do that, fast two months consecutively. Ayat are sent down because of the disrespect of a husband to his wife. Mujadila means argue. Yes. She was arguing with the Prophet Muhammad. Because the Prophet Muhammad, he has a rule at that time. And then then she was she was telling him, but he, 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 was, he couldn't tell her anything because it is a rule. The, so then she argued. So then she went back to, she said that uh, in this case, I'm going to ask God. So she argued. So the whole uh, surah means argue. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So she was arguing the Prophet Muhammad. So now in these days, they say woman cannot argue, cannot just argue either her husband or anyone. She was arguing the Prophet Muhammad himself. And that's why the Quran was supporting woman. Uh, and until now, we don't know that she is uh, supported by uh, Allah. Just like this. So it, it is hidden. Just like a story hidden, his story. Jazakumullah right? khairan. Exactly. So the, the, the surah mujadila means the one who is the one who is arguing. She's brought her case forth. So actually, uh, to go into more detail, because you brought it up, the, the detail of the, the situation is that the words that this man has said, that you are like the back of my mother, which is called dhihar in the Arabic language, it was a way of jahiliyyah, of divorcing your wife. It was a way, instead of saying, I divorce you, you say something disgusting like that. You are like the back of my mother. And so she is coming to the Prophet ﷺ and saying, he said these words, does that mean I'm divorced or not? Is this Islamic divorce or not? And how can he say these things? I've had children with him. I've, I, I, I bore children from him, etc. So she's, she's in, a, in a state where she's, she's actually upset. And it says, uh, She's actually like trying to have a back and forth with the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ doesn't, doesn't know the answer immediately. So he remains silent. And Allah reveals these ayat. So she was able to, yes, bring her position forward. And even in something that she wasn't sure if she was correct or not, she was trying to put her evidence forward. That this is a divorce of jahiliyyah. Does it mean something right now in Islam? Right. And Allah tra- uh, he is, is trying to, to document this so nobody will uh, hide this kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Subhanallah, it's, it's, it's an, this, the story is an amazing story and it's an amazing lesson. Can you imagine the, the men at that time hearing this? They said, well, now every single thing I say in my home, I thought perhaps it was just between me and my wife. Allah is listening to it. Allah is witness to all of that. He is al-sami al-basir. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, so Allah uh, um, conveys these ayat to the Prophet 
The Prophet ﷺ conveys these ayat to the people. He is trying his best to fight against this culture that exists at that time. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran about Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Surah Al-A'raf, Ayah 157. And he, Rasulullah sallallahu relieves them of their burdens and the shackles that were upon them. The Prophet came, the Prophet was sent as a messenger to relieve people of the shackles that the traditions, that their customs, that their community had put upon them. And amongst these shackles were the shackles that were put upon women at that time. What, what, what we are required to do, what we need to do for ourselves is we need to uh, have communities who have shifted their views to realign with the prophetic paradigm of how he saw women and treated women in his community and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was telling him to teach people to treat people in his community because his is the best example. And so going back to the, the, the book of Abu Shukka, the liberation of women at the time of the message, I want to, actually this class is going to be us going through much of that book. So I want to give you some of the information, some of the stories that he presents to us in that book that may give you a different picture. It may paint a completely different picture of what you expected women to be at the time of the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa And I want, what I want you guys to do particularly is pay attention to these stories and any story that you hear that resonates well with you, that changes your mind about maybe an issue that you're having or, or issue that you know someone is having, I want you to note that dime down and we are going to discuss those particular stories. So in his books, simply in his muqaddimah, in his uh, introduction, uh, Abu Shukka mentions that, that he saw in the books of Sahih Bukhari and Sahih Muslim mentionings of women who observed Fajr and Isha prayer in the masjid. Now, why do you think it was important to mention Fajr and Isha prayer? What, is, what does it look like outside? It is dark outside. But he said it was a regular thing that he saw in these ahadith that women were attending Fajr and Isha prayer in the masjid. To the point, it was so regular to the point that there's a hadith where the Prophet ﷺ one day, everyone is waiting for him in the masjid for Isha prayer. And he has delayed it for a long time. He hasn't come out to, to lead the people in prayer. So Umar radiallahu anhu says, when, when the Prophet finally comes much later in the night, he says, Ya Rasulullah, uh, the, the, the women and children have already wa- went to sleep. The women and children have already gone to sleep. Now, where this, uh, where this hadith is mentioned in the books of, um, of hadith are in the, the, the benefits and the beauties of delaying the Isha prayer. That actually all of the prayers should be prayed on time, but the Prophet ﷺ said there is a beauty in delaying the Isha prayer to later. But if you see in the nuance of that hadith, and this is what he saw in that nuance of the hadith, was women and children were regularly attending Isha prayer in their masjid. To the point that Umar had to mention that it's so late, they've already left and they've gone to sleep. They, did, they, they couldn't stay any longer. They prayed their Isha and they left. That means that the Prophet ﷺ had created a community and a masjid in which women felt welcome to come to their masjid, be a part of their congregation, that they were encouraged to come for Isha Salah. Even the children are encouraged to come for Isha Salah. Is that the kind of community 
environment and masjid environment that we feel today. When you look at Aisha prayer, you see many rows of men, but very few women. Are we, not, are we creating an environment that is similar to that of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? Just one generation between the Prophet and Tabi'in. How did the men started preventing the women going to the masjid? Very good question. Yes, that's an excellent question. So, the Prophet So the question is, how is it possible that in the time of the Prophet while he is there, right then and there, people were preventing their women from going to the masjid? Well, we know that that's a fact because. The Prophet ﷺ in an authentic hadith says, لا تمنعوا إما الله من مساجد الله. He says, do not prevent the female slaves of Allah from the masajid of Allah. Why would someone have to make that? Why would someone have to say that? Why would Rasulullah have to say that so, so bluntly? Because people were preventing the women from coming to the masajid. It was a part of their culture. It's a part of the fact that Islam came to correct people's character. It came to correct the, the wrong ways that people were thinking. And one of those wrong ways, which was so uh, deeply rooted in their culture, was the way that they viewed women. So that even when the Prophet ﷺ came, people were still saying, no, I don't want you to go to the masjid, saying to their wives. So the Prophet ﷺ kept on going out there and saying, do not prevent your women from going to the masjid. Even Umar radiallahu anhu, his, his wife mentions that when, um, when the Prophet ﷺ mentioned this, and I wanted to go out to the prayer. I looked at, you know, looking at Omar radiallahu anhu's face, I could see he disliked it. So she, she asked him, are you going to prevent me from something the Prophet has made permissible for me? And Omar radiallahu anhu just remained silent. It was in their culture. It was, it was embedded inside of them that they had this idea of what women what, what status women should be. But the Prophet ﷺ came there to change that culture. It came there to, to try to change the way that they were thinking. But even to the point where one generation later, Abdullah ibn Umar, the grandson, uh, the, uh, Abdullah ibn Umar is the son of Umar ibn al-Khattab. His son, his son, there is a conversation in, um, in books of history which mentions that Abdullah ibn Umar says to his son, the Prophet ﷺ said, do not prevent your women from coming to the masjid. And Abdullah ibn Umar responds to his father, uh, the, the grandson responds to Abdullah ibn Umar, but I will surely prevent my women from going to the masjid. And the next line in the books of history says, then his father, sabbahu sabban aliman. His father, the son of Umar ibn al-Khattab, says to, to his grandson, he, he curses him a great cursing. How dare you say that when I just mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ didn't allow it. So if we know that while the Prophet ﷺ is alive, this culture still exists and it's still affecting the way that people are, are treating their women. And a generation right after he has passed away, it is still affecting the way people treat their women. Then we know that inevitably this is a disease of, of human nature, right? It is a disease that Islam came to try to fix and has, has pushed very you know, strongly for us to fix in ourselves. But the reality is if it existed then at that time, a generation later, then 
obviously there is no doubt that it will exist in our generation today in in a hundred years ago 800 years ago that will exist and manifest in different ways yes so does doesn't this uh, tell you something about like uh, um, some of hadith like uh, just put uh, politically uh, by such name uh, against women to keep them down and that's why until today we think that women cannot travel by herself for some mm. reason I don't know why I will, I will address that, inshallah. I will address that particular idea, the idea of, of um, agenda or no agenda, inshallah. I'll address it at the end, and particularly traveling. Um, I, just, I just request everyone, if we can do the questions at the end, inshallah, in about, uh, I say 30 minutes, we'll do the questions at the end, um, if, if there's anything that I haven't covered, inshallah. Okay, so... This, this book, continuing with what he mentions in the book, Women Who Observed Fajr and Aisha Prayer in the Masjid, he says he, he saw in the books of Sahih Bukhari and Muslim a woman who memorized Surah Qaf from the mouth of Rasulullah meaning she attended the masjid so often, she was in the congregation of the Prophet that just from hearing him recite it so often, she had memorized it in that fashion. It is mentioned that there were women who spent the last 10 nights of Ramadan in i'tikaf in the masjid of the Prophet Those were the wives of the Prophet And it is mentioned in the ahadith that they said, we did this at the time of the Prophet and we did this after his death. And then the other women of the Sahaba followed through with this. And what's interesting to note is this is all done in a masjid in which there is no barrier between the men and the women. The Prophet ﷺ, when he built his masjid in Medina, regardless of the fact that there was still natural hormones and fitna that exist between men and women, he decided not to erect a barrier between the men and the women in his masjid. And it's it's interesting what were the what were the uh, um, what was the effect of that. And so we see in a uh, hadith, Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu mentions that one day um, I came to the masjid and I saw two rows of women and one row of men standing up for prayer. And then he goes, maybe I got that wrong. There was one row of women and two rows of men. What that tells you in the nuance of this hadith is Abu Huraira radiallahu anhu is walking into a masjid where both men and women are in a congregation together without a barrier. The men in the front and the women in the back. It already t- it paints the picture immediately that it is a masjid where they were all in one congregation. Now, the next thing he mentions is the Prophet ﷺ leads the people in prayer, and then he turns around, just as an imam should turn around after the prayer, and he addresses the men with a question. He asks them a question. And nobody from the men answer the question. Nobody wants to speak up. So then it says, then he looks beyond, and he addresses the same question to the women, and one woman stands up and answers the question. The Prophet ﷺ had created an environment in his masjid where he had direct access to address all of his congregants, both the men and the women, where he was able to ask them questions and they to answer questions. And that means, on the, on the flip side, that women had the ability to ask him questions directly and have them answered by him. This was the community that he created at the time of... The, uh, at the time of the, the revelation being revealed. And so 
perhaps this paints a different picture maybe of the masjid itself, but there are so many other arenas and areas where we can see the lives of the, the women around the Prophet ﷺ, they really paint a completely different picture. There's a particular hadith where a woman says that I was so excited at my walima because I was able to serve the Prophet ﷺ myself. She served a particular drink to him. So this is a walima, which perhaps is not the same picture of a walima that we, we imagine. We don't have a lot of details, but in the nuance of this hadith, we see that she, a woman, is honored to come and serve the Prophet ﷺ a drink at her own walima. And the Prophet ﷺ accepts it and is happy. This is the relationship that he had with the women of his community where they were, they were honored to meet him. They, were, they, 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 they loved the relationship that they had with the imam of their community. So much so that she, she mentions the hadith, I'm so, I was so excited to serve the Prophet ﷺ a drink at my own walima. In the sphere of women going outside of the home, we have numerous ahadith which paint a completely different picture than what we had expected. It is mentioned that there is two women, Al-Rabi bint Mu'awad and Al-Hawla. They used to make itr and they used to sell them in the, in the marketplace of Medina. The marketplace of Medina. It is also mentioned Zainab bint Jahash, the wife of the Prophet used to make crafts by hand. And she used to sell them in the marketplace in Medina. These are mentioned in Sahih Muslim. That these women, you could say they were, what would you call them? They were entrepreneurs. They were businesswomen who were making their own items, going to the market, selling them to people. And the marketplace is not a segregated market. It's men selling at their stalls, women selling at their stalls, sometimes husband and wife selling at their stalls. And the people coming to buy, the customers are both men and women. And this was at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. They had these kinds of interactions as long as they were following the respectable bounds of the sharia in how they interacted. They were able to be in these kinds of positions. And the Prophet ﷺ praises Zainab bint Jesh because it says that she would work and she would give sadaqah from that money. From that money that she made from what she would, she would sell in the marketplace, she would give sadaqah and he praised her for that action. We have... The woman, this is the aunt of Jabir radiallahu anhu. Jabir is one of the young sahaba at, at the time of the Prophet So the aunt of Jabir has been divorced and she is in her idda period. And she has a farm. She has a date farm that she needs to tend to. So while she's sitting at home, she's thinking to herself, I need to go tend to my date farm. So she goes outside of the home and she goes towards her date farm and a man stops her and says, you're not allowed to be outside, it's your idda period. And the obligation actually has been, it's already been revealed that a woman in her idda period, she has three cycles that she has to stay home. So she actually goes home. And then she asks Rasulullah wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, I have a date farm, I need to tend to it, I wanted to gather some of the dates, what do I do? I'm in my idda period, I know it's obligatory for me to be at home. The Prophet wasallam says, go ahead, tend to your date farm. And perhaps you will give sadaqah from it and you will benefit and the, the ummah will benefit from it. In a, in a situation where the obligation, this is an exceptional situation where it was obligatory for her to be home, where the women knew it was obligatory to be home, the Prophet ﷺ made an exception and said she is allowed to be out, to tend to what she needs to do, to her job, to whatever, her farm that she owns. 
and that there would be benefit for it for herself and others. So we could say if in an exceptional case where she is obliged to be home, the Prophet ﷺ is making an exception, then we know the default ruling was that women were out and about doing what they needed to do. There are narrations of women walking miles, walking many, many, um, many hours, going to uh, a well to get water, to bring water back to her family. This is just normal reality. There were women and men who were husband and wives who were farmers. They're, they're, they're tending to their farm. They have servants working who they have authority over, who the, both the husband and wife are telling them, do this, do that, and then this and that. So we have to understand that when we think of the Sahaba in the time of the Prophet ﷺ, we imagine it was a, a reality that is outside of this dunya. You know, we think of it in a completely different way. But when you look at the nuances of these ahadith, these, these women and men led normal lives when you think of the things that need to be done in regular life. And how did they do it? Well, which, whichever way that they did it, the Prophet ﷺ approved of it. In certain cases, he, he praised it. And when it was happening in front of him, and it is from the, the rulings of a messenger of Allah that if he sees something and it happens in front of him, and it is incorrect, he must correct it. That is from amongst the, the rulings of the, of the messengers of Allah. And so he saw so many of these actions taking place, and yet he never said to, uh, to the women, well, you know, you shouldn't even be outside selling, selling these things. You shouldn't be having any of these interactions. There's even a story of um, the, the Sahaba. They mentioned this story. They say the reason we really enjoyed Jummah, uh, the day of Friday, was a particular reason. Yes, it's the Jummah prayer, but they said, you know, after Jummah prayer every day, there was a particular woman from amongst uh, from Medina who used to make this um, this kind of soup from beets, I believe. She used to make beet soup. And all of us used to come to her home after the Jummah prayer and gather, and she would serve us all this soup. And, she, and they said, and we would always look forward to Friday for that reason. So there are men, men and male and female Sahaba who all know about this one woman who makes the best soup in town and she goes and she serves it to the, to the people. And it is not mentioned whether she charges or not. So we could say either she's the first restaurant owner of the Sahaba or she is the first soup kitchen of the Sahaba. Either way, she is a woman that the town knows that she has the best beet soup in town and she is going and serving both the men and the women and they have this respect for her. There is a woman named... Um Sharik. Um Sharik is was a very wealthy Ansari woman, and this is mentioned in Sahih Muslim that the Prophet ﷺ, when guests would come from all different tribes, from all these different delegations, he would do his best to, to have them in his home. But when there was overflowed in his home, he would say, Go to the home of Um Sharik, she will take care of you. She ran a guest house, you could say. There were, it, it is said that it was, it was often that there were guests just in and out of her house all of the time. They're coming, they're sleeping, she's taking care of them, she's feeding them, and then they're on their way after they are done receiving the message or receiving the teachings or what, whatever reason they had come to Medina. It is mentioned that Um Sharik is the home that you go to if you are a guest and you need to be taken care of in town. <coughs> We have the example of Aisha radiallahu anha. When we mention that, you know, from our Sunday school days, we, we might not be able to mention a lot of Sahaba. Well, Aisha radiallahu anha is one that we are definitely able to mention, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But have we learned the extent, the, the, the um, authority that she actually had in the land? 
So the Prophet ﷺ, after he has passed away, when people had disputes, whether it's in the city of Medina or from, from cities outside, because the Muslim Ummah has, has become so large, it is said that if they had a dispute that they couldn't find the answer to, they would travel to the home of Aisha radiallahu anha and she would give them the final verdict. She would know the answers because she lived with the Prophet She had narrated so many ahadith. She, she saw the way the Prophet lived and interacted with people. She knew the ruling. She was, you could say, the best muftiya of her time, the best faqiha of her time, that she knew her fiqh, she knew her sharia. And there are even books written on the corrections of Aisha of other sahaba. So after the Prophet has passed away, one sahabi may make a ruling in a case or a fatwa, and Aisha radiallahu anha says, actually, this evidence is stronger, and this is the case, and this should be the ruling that we put forth. So there are books written about the corrections of Aisha of other sahaba. We have... Um, we have the example of, um, I know we heard there's a Nusayba here in class. There's a story of Nusayba bint Khabbab, radiallahu anha. Now this is a particularly exceptional case, but it's, it's worthy of mention because of how the Prophet ﷺ reacted to her actions. So whenever there was a battle of, of the, uh, between the Muslims and another army, it was often that they would send women to come and uh, take care of the wounded at the battlefield. One particular woman, Nusayba bint Khabbab, is an older woman. She has grown sons. Nusayba bint Khabbab doesn't come to the battlefield ready to heal the wounded. She comes with her armor and her weapons. And she comes onto the battlefield, and particularly at the Battle of Uhud, she is literally one of the bodyguards of the Prophet ﷺ, where the Prophet ﷺ says, in the Battle of Uhud, things got really difficult, where the army was really coming on to the Muslims, and, and even getting very close to the Prophet ﷺ. And he mentions in an authentic hadith, whenever I looked to the left, I saw Nusayba. And whenever I looked to the right, I saw Nusayba. I saw her fighting, fighting right in front of me. She was literally standing in front of the Prophet ﷺ. Someone came to the, from the right, and she fought them. She defended the Prophet ﷺ with her weapons, with whatever ability she had. And the Prophet ﷺ, after this battle, praises her and says, Oh, how brave you are. Oh, how brave you are, Nusayba, for what you have done at the Battle of Uhud. In an exceptional case, we won't say that all the women were fighting in the battlefield. No, it was not a norm. But when one woman decided to, and she, she was so brave and courageous and did this, the Prophet ﷺ didn't rebuke her. In fact, he said how brave she was for the actions that she took on the battlefield. Now, all, with all of this information in mind, we see that um, this, this idea where the Prophet ﷺ valued the women in his community, this, this value he gave to women, it, it trickled down. It trickled down this, this uh, you know, status that he had raised women to in the society, the shackles he had taken off of them. It trickled down um, uh, through the generations for, for some people who really paid attention. And so we have that, an example of um, Umar radiallahu anhu. When he has become the Khalifa, this is the Prophet has passed away. We have um, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu has now passed away. Umar radiallahu anhu is now the Khalifa. And so Umar radiallahu anhu was very well known that when, when he was the Khalifa, he was patrolling the streets and he's patrolling the neighborhoods and making sure everything is okay. But him as one person, uh, he wasn't enough to get all of the work done. So 
he had decided that, you know, the marketplace is becoming very busy. There's so many people buying and selling, and I can't manage every single dispute. I can't manage to make sure that everyone is doing the right thing, that someone's not putting extra weight on those dates and uh, giving a, an unfair price. They're being deceitful. And so he decides that he wants to appoint someone as the deputy, as, as the, the uh, police person of the marketplace of Medina. Now, Umar radiallahu anhu thinks to himself, who is the most capable, who is the most skilled, who knows the Sharia transactions laws the best? And by the way, the transaction laws of um, the, the fiqh of transactions and buying and selling is one of the most difficult uh, uh, topics to study. And so Umar radiallahu anhu from all of the people of Medina decides to appoint Shifa bint Abdullah a female from amongst the people of Medina to be the deputy of the marketplace. That she was his eyes. He, she would go through the marketplace and if someone was doing something incorrect, she corrected them. And if there was a dispute, she would try to, to figure it out. And if she couldn't figure it out, she would go to Umar radiallahu anhu. And this worked out so well that the people of Mecca said, we need, a, we need someone to, market, to, to uh, be a deputy over our marketplace. And so when appointing someone for the marketplace of Mecca, he appoints Samra bint Nuhaik, another female for the job. And what's, what's funny, um, perhaps it wasn't funny to the people at that time, but the description of Samra in the books of history is that Samra would walk through the marketplace with a whip in her hand. She had to show that she had authority, that she, that people needed to listen to her, so she had a whip in her hand to perhaps put fear into the hearts of those who were doing things wrong, who were being deceitful. She had this kind of ambiance about her. Now, Umar radiallahu anhu had selected two women to be in authority over just the women of the marketplace? No over everyone of the marketplace. And was this a very particular woman's issue? Has this have anything to do with dress or menstruation? No. He saw these women as the most qualified for this job. He didn't look at it based on their gender, their race, their age. He looked at it based on their qualifications for the job. This is something that the Prophet ﷺ had taught in his community. He had taught the value of people for who they are and the skills they have rather than the race or the gender or the age that they were. The Prophet ﷺ appointed so many young men as leaders of the armies. He appoints Bilal radiallahu anhu as the mu'adhan. He appoints um, uh, Abdullah ibn Ummi Makhtoum, a blind man, as the mu'adhan, as the second mu'adhan, uh, and actually as the deputy of the entire city when the others had left from Medina to engage in, in uh, battle. Uh, a blind man was left. And so the Prophet ﷺ appointed people in positions and valued them for their skills and their abilities rather than all of these other um, uh, social statuses that we have put upon people, their gender, their race, their age. There's a particular example from the life of the Prophet ﷺ where in the city of Medina, in his masjid, now the masjid is newly built and the, 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 the Prophet ﷺ wants to um, erect a mimbar. So he wants a mimbar where the, the khatib will, will speak on Jummah prayer. And so he asks one of the sahaba, um, Sahal, he asks Sahal, who do you think I should go to to get this mimbar made? And Sahal immediately says, 
I know a woman from the Ansar. I know a woman from the Ansar who can get the job done. The Prophet ﷺ doesn't say, uh, you know what, I was kind of, we don't want to involve women in these matters. This is a masjid issue. You know, we don't have women in these matters. No, the Prophet ﷺ says, call that woman to me. And that woman comes and he asks, he says, we need a mimbar, you know, get the best wood, get the best everything. She goes, she has her, perhaps her own um, carpentry business, whatever it is. She has her servants get the correct wood and the correct style and she makes the best mimbar and she presents it to the Prophet ﷺ. And now the mimbar that is sitting in the masjid of the Prophet ﷺ at that time was made by a woman because she was the one who could get the job done the best. The Prophet ﷺ appointed as the carekeeper of his masjid in Medina, Ummu Mehjan. Ummu Mehjan was an Ethiopian black woman. And he appoints her as the carekeeper, as the, 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 the groundskeeper of his masjid. She would take care of the masjid, clean it up, put the bukhur. When things were not in order, she would take care of it. Now, Ummu Mehjan was so beloved to the Prophet ﷺ that... One day he comes in and he notices that she's not there. And he asks the other sahaba and he says, Where is Ummu Mahjan? I haven't seen her. And the sahaba say, Oh ya Rasulullah, she actually passed away a couple of days ago. And we already prayed the janazah and we already, we already buried her. And the Prophet ﷺ becomes furious. And he says, Did you not think it was important to tell me about this? He is the messenger of Allah. People are passing away. There are janazahs held that he doesn't know about because he might be in a different city. He may be traveling. This is one particular one he didn't know about. But the fact that they thought it wasn't important to tell him, he was very upset because he valued this woman who took care of his masjid. And so the Prophet ﷺ goes immediately to her grave and he prays his own separate salat al-janazah over Ummu Mihjan radiallahu anha. The Prophet ﷺ was fighting against a culture. He was fighting against a culture which put women at a level that, that meant that they were just property. But the Prophet ﷺ was doing his best to change the opinions of people, to take the shackles off of the women and the men and the community from, from the traditions that had been plaguing them for so long. Umar anhu mentions in a hadith that he sees kind of the difference between before Islam and after Islam. And he's just mentioning this in passing. He says, you know, before Islam, we never used to let the women into any of our affairs. And with that simple statement, it tells us that everything has changed. They never used to be let into the affairs of perhaps between husband and wife, who's right, who's wrong. They weren't let into those affairs outside of the home, politics, anything like that. They weren't let into those affairs. But, the, but Umar is mentioning after Islam, it's a different story. Of treating with more respect and equality. So, like, 
is there, do I just never see anything about like them making that transition of how to treat women or is that like from the Sahaba or is that a misconception? Well, so it did occur at the time of the Prophet As you can imagine, when a society is treating women to a certain, at a, at a, putting them at a certain level, it is now going to flip the table for a lot of people who thought very differently. And so, uh, for example, Umar radiallahu anhu still feeling like I don't want to let my, my women go out, but knowing that I have to adhere to the, the rulings of the Prophet There were still other um, people from different tribes who didn't allow it, um, to the point where you there's a hadith mentioning a woman from another tribe from far away comes and meets um, one of the women from Medina, and one of the women from Medina is mentioning, yes, the Eid prayer, and we go out to the Eid prayer, and, you know, just talking about it in passing. And this woman says, you guys go out to the Eid prayer? Oh, we're not allowed to do that. This is at the time of the Prophet ﷺ. And that woman then narrates the, the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ and says, oh, yes, the Prophet ﷺ actually encouraged the women. He said, the young and the old, the menstruating and the non-menstruating, he was trying his best to say, get everyone out of the house and make them a part of this big Eid celebration. And this woman says, I never heard of that. I didn't know that. And so the information, if, if it was spreading, maybe it wasn't getting to everyone. And when it was getting to people, they still rejected it because of this strong overarching tradition and culture that is so deeply seated. It was difficult. It, there, there's a mentioning of a, a woman who says to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, the men are mentioned so many times in the Qur'an, what about us? And that is actually said as one of the reasons of revelation of that ayah, إِنَّ الْمُسْلِمِينَ وَالْمُسْلِمَاتِ وَالْمُؤْمِنِينَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ Allah heard the complaint of that woman. Women are not mentioned so much in the Qur'an, and Allah says, I, you know, I will mention you. If, that's, if that is what is necessary, even though in the Arabic language, when you say Muslimun, it means both men and women. The Arabic language has a default that when you say uh, Muslimun, Mu'minun, it includes both men and women. But they wanted, she wanted to hear that the women were also uh, venerated and honored, and Allah heard that complaint and immediately, and immediately, uh, and had, had revealed, revealed those ayat. So she wasn't complaining to Allah, but just asking Rasulullah and Allah is listening to this complaint that is in her heart. So it was something that they struggled with at that very time. It was something that they struggled with a generation later. It is something I would say. You know, a lot of times we talk about Islam like, well, this is this person's not a good Muslim because they do this, that, and the other. Well, the reality is all of us, every single one of us has shortcomings. And as a society, we have these huge shortcomings. Islam came to try to fix and correct those shortcomings. But the reality, reality is being sons uh, and daughters of Adam, we are, we are prone to, to messing up. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if, if, I, if you guys were not to sin at all and just do good, then I would have sent another, um, another, another creation that would um, sin and then come back to me. So the reality is, our, as humans, we are flawed. And one of the big flaws that we have is this idea of putting people at different levels based on gender, race, age, whatever it may be, disability. But that is where we, we need to educate ourselves 
more about what the Prophet ﷺ said about each and every one of these issues. So we're able to raise a generation now of Muslim men and women who are confident in understanding their, the honor that they have been given in this religion, the rights that they have been given in this religion. And then we, we, we will hopefully not see as much of the backlash that we see. For example, I'll just give you an example. Um, I was teaching this, uh, uh, talking particularly about women in the masjid uh, and how the, you know, they were invited and they were in this community gathering in the masjid. And a woman came up to me afterwards and said, you know what, I was thinking just last week that I've had enough and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join or make a women's only masjid. Like I've had enough of this. And she said, but now that I know that the, it's not Islam that has taken these away, but it is our communities. You know what? I'm going to try my best to educate my community and show them the reality of the model of Rasulullah It is when we go too much to one end or the other that we see the problems that we see. When you become too strict, then you'll see people falling off. When you become too much to the other side, too liberal, you'll also see people falling off. Falling off. The, the example of the Prophet and the model that he has shown us through all of these examples of women who lived at that time whom he's either praising or he's seeing what they're doing and he's accepting of it it shows us a middle path that is beautiful one that when we when we practice it in 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 reality then the women feel that they are empowered and they are able to live freely in this world yes with the obligations and the parameters that Allah has put upon us because we know that he is the creator and he knows best but within that parameter there is so much freedom and empowerment that we are able to see from the women at the time of Rasulullah And so um, I will just end it off with um, uh, one, one, one uh, question that you had um, alluded to, which was, is there sort of this um, idea that scholars have kind of had this political or whatever it may be agenda to hide these ahadith or hide these truths or, or not, you know, not put them in the forefront or, or lie about these things. Well, I would say that that's kind of a dangerous road to go down. And, and, and I would say I personally experienced this where I'd say in my fourth year of studies, I was learning all these things about Muslim women. But in the sharh, in the explanation of some of these ahadith and some of these ayat, I was, I was seeing explanations that were very much still putting women at a lower level from some of these scholars. And so I asked um, a male teacher of mine who, who I, whom I really respected, a mentor of mine, and I said, what, do, what can I do with this information? It's really difficult for me to understand. Allah says this about women. The Rasulullah says this about the women. But then in the explanation of the ahadith, the scholars are saying, well, no, really, it's actually better if she stays home. Yes, this hadith exists, but she should stay at home. It, 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 they, yes. And so what this teacher said to me, he said, the reality is that we cannot... We cannot assume, or we, we must assume, and it's, it's inevitable, that the geographical location and the time and the culture in which a human being lives will influence the way that they see all issues. It will definitely affect the way that they see all issues. And so when you see an explanation about 
an explanation of a hadith that says women are allowed to go out or that they were going out. And the explanation says from a renowned scholar that really it's not good if they go out. Then look at where did that person live? What era did they live in? What was the culture and the tradition of the people of those times? And know that, okay, inevitably, that was going to influence the way that they thought about women. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we, we have an example, um, just to give you a, a real example. So um, when Morocco was being invaded by the Europeans, when Morocco was being invaded by the Europeans, um, it was a dangerous place for anybody to be out, but particularly children were being kidnapped and women were being kidnapped and raped. And this was the situation of this volatile time. At that moment in Morocco, the main scholars came up with a fatwa that women and children should not go outside at all. It was safer for them to be inside and they made a ruling that women and children should not be outside at all. And in fact, you have that idea of the, the, the haram or what they call the harem, which is, you know, when you have homes which... They're a building, and then in the inside, there's actually this courtyard that is, you know, outside. So these were built, in a sense, to allow the women to have this ability to feel like they can go outside, but they actually wouldn't leave their homes. So this was kind of a compromise. Now, at that time in Morocco, do you think that there were a lot of people that were against this ruling? Maybe some, but not a whole lot, because they saw the reality that when women were going out, they were kidnapped and not coming back. Now the question is, do we in Houston, Texas in 2018 take that ruling and that explanation and that fatwa and apply it here, now, and in our circumstance and situation? No. And that's why it's so important for people to understand the flexibility of the fiqh that Rasulullah and, and that Allah has left for us. Where things were left vague, it is up to the ijtihad, the, the, the diligent working of the local scholars of that time to come up with how to understand that Quranic ayah or that hadith in terms of how it applies to us today in our situation, in our location, and with our circumstances. And so I wouldn't say that there was particularly an agenda, but I would, uh, you know, the, the reason that all of these things we've never heard about, I don't know if there's particularly an agenda, and I would, I would say a researcher or a historian really needs to look into that, but I do believe that what it requires today is people to be looking at all of these issues, particularly women's issues, looking at it from the lens of a woman who lives in this location in 2018 and asking our scholars to look at all of the evidences to see what would be the ruling in such a case like this. Now I'll give you an example of how scholars have, have come to different conclusions about things. And this is, this is the last thing, also answering your question about women's traveling. So in regards to women's traveling, for example, the Prophet ﷺ in an authentic hadith says, a woman should not travel, a travel of three days or more, except that she has her mahram with her. And there are other narrations that it says two days or more or one day or more. So essentially, what do we see from this hadith? That she is taking a long travel, a long travel. Okay, so we have that one hadith. Now we have on the other hand, a hadith of the Prophet ﷺ where he says, Bushra, 
glad tidings to you all, to the entire Muslim Ummah, that there will be a time where a woman will travel from this city to a very faraway city and not a single person will bother her. She will travel on her own and not a single person will bother her. Now how do we reconcile these two ahadith? Well, Ali radiallahu anhu says, now he's, the Prophet after he's passed away, Ali radiallahu anhu says, I witnessed the, the, the reality of that hadith in my lifetime. He says that one day a woman is coming on her horse or whatever travel animal she's coming on, and she is all alone, and there's nobody with her, and we don't recognize her, so she was a traveler. And so he goes to this woman, curious, and asks her, where did you come from? And she says, I came from this city, the city mentioned in, that the Prophet mentioned. And he said, and, and, and were you alone? She says, I was alone. And he says, did anyone give you any trouble? And she said, no one so much as even gave me a second glance. There was no trouble in the land. Now, the question is, what scholars have to do, so now from these ahadith come two main scholarly opinions. One is that a woman on any travel that is a long travel, she must have a mahram. And then the second opinion is, no, perhaps there's something else that we need to be looking into. And so scholars of the, of the past used to say, no, it was, it was generally just the, the default rule is she does not travel at all as long as it's a long travel. So scholars later on, they, they look into the hadith and they say, okay, what is the illa? What is, this is the word means, the, the factor that made that action haram. What made it haram for a woman to travel on her own without a mahram for two or three days. So they said, well, at that time, a travel of one day, think about it, 24 hours. So we're not talking about going from home to home or home to Walmart or even home to 30, 40 minutes away or an hour away. It was a long travel that was going to take a long time. So this travel meant that a woman on her own was going to be traveling through the desert. And what happened to women who traveled on their own in the desert at that time? There were people at that time which were called desert bandits. They're waiting for an easy prey on the road that they can mug or rob or kidnap or do whatever. This was just the reality of the time of the Prophet ﷺ. There wasn't a lot of safety when you had tribes and tribes and tribes who are warring tribes. So there was not safety on the road. And so for the safety of, the, of a woman in an unsafe kind of location, a long desert travel, the Prophet ﷺ made it obligatory for her to have a mahram. Now the Prophet ﷺ is then giving a bushra, um, a glad tiding that there will be a time that that safety can be guaranteed. And that time came when the Prophet ﷺ finally, at the end of, near, the end of his prophecy, Fatha Mecca happens. Uh, Mecca is regained by the Muslims. Now all of the cities all over Arabia and the Middle East are becoming Muslim. Everyone's accepting Islam. And now there is safety in the land. There is general safety in the entire land where everyone is, almost everyone is Muslim. And if they're not, they're adhering to the rules of the Muslims because they are the main um, leaders of the land. And now it is safe for a woman to travel. And the Prophet ﷺ gives glad tidings that there will be a day that a woman will travel on her own. So what the scholars came, uh, have, have come to the conclusion with is... If there is not safety guaranteed, there is danger in this travel that a woman will take, she should have a mahram. But if safety can be guaranteed, then it should be fine for her. And this actually happened with the wives of the Prophet ﷺ. So after the Prophet ﷺ had passed away, Aisha radiallahu anha wants to go and make hajj. 
she wants to make Hajj, but she doesn't have her mahram Rasulullah with her. And she is basically, it's this argument between, or a debate between the wives of the Prophet who all, they're all like, yes, we all want to go, we all want to go for Hajj. And Umar radiallahu anhu, Khalifa at that time. And so the, the Umar radiallahu anhu says, no, you know, you can't. Actually, there was a particular injunction made upon the wives of the Prophet ﷺ in Surah Nisa, which says, O wives of the Prophet, you are not like any other women. And then all these injunctions were put upon them. One of them was to stay in your home. They were allowed to go out for necessities, but generally speaking, they were to stay in the home. And one of the other injunctions was, the, uh, Allah says about them, that they are not to marry any other uh, men after the Prophet ﷺ's death. And another is, if a man were to come into her home, it should be from behind a veil, min wara'i hijab, and from behind a curtain. And so these particular injunctions put upon the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, you could say they were protection from, for them because they were not to marry any other women after Rasulullah ﷺ. So there were particular protections put in place. They were not going to go out as much. There was not going to be this ability that someone may desire and, and there may be fitna for them. Now, they have this kind of ruling obligation over them. And Umar radiallahu anhu says, no, you guys can't. You guys can't go for hajj. And so Aisha radiallahu anha, being the muftiya that she is, being the faqiha that she is, she tries her way, she does ijtihad, which means she diligently works through looking at the ahadith, thinking of the ahadith and the ayat, and she comes up with her uh, response. And she says, um, oh Umar, uh, ya amirul mu'mineen, did, did not Rasulullah say that the best jihad is hajj? That one of the best jihads for a woman is hajj. And so the Prophet, so Umar radiallahu anhu takes that into consideration and says, yes, the Prophet did say that. And she comes up with the conclusion. She says, okay, perhaps not all of us have our mahram right now to, to travel with us, but we will travel in a group together. And perhaps there will be a leader put in charge of us who, uh, who makes sure that there is security for us. And eventually the Sahaba and Umar radiallahu anhu, they discuss this and they grant permission to Aisha radiallahu anha and all of the wives of the Prophet to travel from Medina to Mecca to make Hajj, not with their mahrams, but with Uthman ibn Affan. Uthman ibn Affan as their leader. And he is not mahram to these women. He is not a direct blood relative to these women or even marriage relative to these women. Yet the, they saw, they made ijtihad in that regard and said, you know what, as long as they're in a group together and there is someone who is in authority, then there is safety that can be guaranteed for these women. There is, there is strength in numbers. And so from this example of Umar radiallahu anhu and the Sahaba, the scholars came up with the understanding that if there is safety insured for a woman and she is in a group traveling, for example, she is on an airplane with a group of, like there's, there's other people in the airplane, right? There's authority in the airplane. There are, there are the, the people who manage the airplane. If something was to happen to her, someone was going to take care of that matter. Or she's on public transportation like a train or a bus where safety can be insured because there are multiple people and there's authority in place. Then they said it is permissible permissible for her to go on that travel. However, if she is going all by herself on a travel to a place where safety can't be insured or the route to there cannot be insured and there are no other people, uh, you know, other people in that gathering or there's no authority in the land to take care, then she should have a mahram in that case. 
Now this is an example of looking at the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ, looking at the ayat, looking at the seerah, looking at the stories, and looking at our own circumstances here in 2018, and the scholars coming to different conclusions. Both are respected and both are valid. A woman should not travel without a mahram, and a woman, if safety can be ensured, and she is amongst a group of people and there is some sort of authority in place, like every type of public transportation, then it is safe for her to travel and she does not require a mahram, just like the case of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, just like the case of the woman who traveled from Hira, from a very far city, to Medina without anybody there and the Prophet ﷺ praised the ummah for that amazing time that would come. And so it requires, just like Abu Shukka did, uh, it requires us to learn about women. It requires us to educate ourselves about the true narrative of women in Islam so we can, we can know our rights so they're not trampled upon and so we can teach our children and the next generation. In our Sunday schools, we can mention the names of these women so that our boys and our girls grow up knowing the status of women in Islam, the God-given rights that Allah has, has granted to us instead of allowing ourselves to continuously be shackled by the traditions and the cultures that have come and made their way inevitably into our lives. And I will leave, uh, I'll finish it with just one story. I keep saying I'll finish it, but we're going to open it up to discussion. Is it uh, Salah time? Okay. There's nobody there. Okay. So what I'll do is um, we can pray Salah and then we can... What would you like to do next? We have, that's yes. The, the whole point of this class is to, you know, to form connections with each other and to, to have these kind of discussions. So we, we have a good another hour and 15 minutes for those who want to stay, please stay. And we will discuss what I wanted to definitely hear from you guys is one of the stories and how it has is able to impact you and then any questions that you guys have. But I wanted to end it with one story. Um, when I was in Malaysia, um, I met a girl who... She came up to me, she became my friend later, but when she met me, she was in the masjid and she asked me, I don't really know how to pray in congregation, what do I do? Do I say things out loud? Do I have to remain quiet? What do I do? And so I explained to her, it was Dhuhr Salah, I explained to her the rulings of Dhuhr Salah, then I asked her, where are you from? And she said, I'm from Afghanistan. And my entire life, I was never allowed inside of the masjid. It was barred for women altogether. And she said, I had never prayed a prayer in congregation. And she said, in fact, not only had I not gone to the masjid, I was afraid of the masjid because we were told this is not a place for us. And so she said, the only Islamic education I got, because the masjid was where the madrasa was, where the schooling was for Islamic education, she said, the only education I got was from my mother. And my mother had, at some point in her life, been barred from the masjid, so her, her knowledge was limited. And so she's saying that for the first time in my life, in 20 years, I had to travel across the sea, uh, not the sea, Afghanistan and Malaysia, um, are, are close by. She had, a, she had to travel that far. She said, this is the first time I'm able to learn about my religion. Though she's living in a Muslim country, 
the rights that were given to her by Allah, that the Prophet tried so hard to fight for, they were taken away and stripped from her and trampled upon to the point that she was, she thought that actually women are at this place. She thought Islam taught us that women are at this place. But slowly she started learning and understanding her rights and to the point that there were so many women in um, in Malaysia there who had come to study from all over the different parts of Asia, they said that they had no desire to go back to their own countries because they knew how they would be treated. They knew how they would be treated. But they said, if anything, it's at least they can go back and try to help the other women who are still shackled up. If anything, perhaps they can go and tell them the reality of what it really feels like to be a Muslim who is empowered by the words of Allah and the sunnah of our Rasulullah Alhamdulillah, we are not perhaps in that position. We are not shackled up to that state. But there are people living in this world at this point who still are. And it is our responsibility to try our best to get that information out to them, whether it be teaching your family members, whether it be teaching your friends, whether it be you know, holding classes and teaching, whatever it may be. We need to start this revolution where people are able to understand the reality of women in Islam. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم 